Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Greetings, everyone. It is episode 259. I'm going to say that slowly this week because I said 208 last week. <laughs> We're recording this episode live on September 22nd, 2022. It's Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening, Nick, and good good evening, everybody. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you're listening, watching, whatever from. Good that. <laughs> we, got, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about how the metaverse needs standards. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about human factors and agile methodology, what artifacts we usually deliver, and uh, whether or not other people in your company are doing UX research. But first, some programming notes. Um, hey, a lot of new listeners recently. Uh, and, and if You've joined us recently. Hi. Hi. Welcome. We're so happy that you found us. We typically get a lot of folks uh, joining up on on the podcast around the time of some big conferences. So welcome. We're happy you're here. Hope you like the show. Uh, and speaking of big conferences, there's a couple other bits of news that I'd like to share. We have our HFES Town Hall next Tuesday. I'm going to sit down with Chris Reed uh, and some other folks from HFES to talk about some fun, exciting things. It'll be the last one before the annual meeting, which, by the way... We'll be there. We're covering the event. Uh, we'll be live streaming the uh, event in some capacity. In what capacity? Uh, well, we are going to have a big old live stream bash. It's going to be a big, long live stream. You can join us on all of our social platforms. Uh, it will, We'll have guests from all different swaths of human factors. We'll have some surprises, some announcements. It'll be a good time. And uh, we hope that you'll join us there. We will kind of package everything up and drop it in our podcast feed, but really the live uh, stuff is going to be super fun, super interesting, and we hope that you can all join us, especially if you're not planning to go to the conference in person. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Barry, um, that's enough from me and the HFES side. What's going on with 1202? So in 1202, you've still got the interview with Susie Broadbent up, that's up there. Um, obviously, we haven't put the, the last... Um, episode up because of the, uh, the the Queen's funeral and things like that. But on Monday, the interview, the, the long-promised interview with Gordon DuPont, the father of the dirty dozen, them 12 main reasons uh, that people that cause people to make mistakes, is going live on Monday morning. Monday morning GMT. So that'll be up on, um, up on the 1202 podcast feed and up on YouTube. But the other thing that's going on, uh, if you want, if you can talk about HFES, I want to talk about the CIHF. Uh, because tomorrow at midday, now, if you're listening to this either live uh, where, uh, through the live recording or when it, when it just as it drops, um, 12 o'clock GMT, um, the CIHF is hosting a webinar with the Indian Society of Ergonomics about the impacts of the pandemic on the informal e economy. Now, this is important because I'm chairing it. And uh, we look to explore the lessons from the, from the pandemic from our international community. And even if you, um, you, even if you miss it, uh, miss the live version, then you will be able to get to it through the CIHF. We um, obviously have all of our um, webinars that we host. They're always available afterwards as well. So even if, you, even if you think you've missed this just because of the timing, and I recognize this is very last minute, um, you can definitely still listen to it later on. And I, I have no doubt because of the, um, the quality of the hosting that it will be a fantastic event. I I. I trust that host. I think I think there's probably going to be some good stuff coming out of that webinar. But enough of inflating Barry's ego. Let's go ahead and get into the news. 
Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. It was a close one this week between our socials and between the patrons. The patrons won us out. Barry, what is the story this week? So the story this week is about the the, the, the idea that the metaverse needs standards too. So the Metaverse Standards Forum sees an opportunity to get everyone to sit down and hash out the basic technologies needed. With a more solid foundation, the forum believes the Metaverse can better develop and evolve. Now, the forum has announced that after two months of hashing priorities, it has an initial list of priority topics that will steer the Metaverse Standards development in its domain working groups. The topics include both straightforward technical problems like augmented and virtual reality standards, as well as the concerns around privacy, ethics and user safety. The metaverse itself doesn't exist yet and probably won't for some years to come in the in the way that we believe it should. But there's enough in industry interest, industry interest in beginning the process towards building it, whatever it may ultimately be. The Metaverse Standards Forum is, is being organized by the Kronos Group, a software consortium developing royalty-free standards around technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, and vision processing. Although there are numerous competing versions of what this metaverse will actually be, many visions of common points of connection, virtual reality, augmented reality tech will be involved as well as drive towards shared experiences whether that's something exciting like attending a concert or mundane things like renewing your driver's license some people see the a future iteration of it or a replacement for the internet but if, if so the technologies that will make it happen need to be more tightly integrated than they are now beyond standardizing just ar and vr come related technologies like 3d modeling volumetric video and geospatial data all in all, the members propose more than 200 potential topics to prioritize for the metaverse development. That list has been narrowed down to eight areas of interest, which will form the first domain working group for the forum members to join. The list includes more technical challenges, such as interoperable 3D assets, user identity, augmented and virtual reality, and user interfaces. Broader challenges also highlighted include metaverse ethics, privacy, governance, and education and certification. So Nick, are you in favor of standards? Do you, do you have any standards? Yes. <laughs> Barry, what do you think? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, look, like the answer is simple. Yes, we, we need standards. Uh, and I think uh, I, at the surface, standards seem like such an unsexy topic in <laughs> in any field. But standards are incredibly cool. And I encourage anyone listening, watching, go check out some standards in your field. You may or may not realize that a lot of things that you work around every day are because of standards. And when you go back and trace that back to the purpose of why those standards were implemented in the first place, it can sometimes be quite illuminating. And also, I'm going to mention this now versus later, but if you are a part of a community, like, I don't know, human factors and ergonomics, where it's a sort of close-knit kind of group, it's a smaller group, you can get involved in standards committee in standards standards committees for a lot of different things. Not even I don't know, four years, five, four years ago, we, we, we went to, out to Ergo X uh, with it, an HFES in 2018. Um, you know, Chris and uh, Dave, Chris, Chris Reed, Dave Rempel, they were talking about um, standardization in uh, exoskeletons and how exoskeletons don't have a whole lot of standards. Well, they were searching for people to get involved with that. And that that's what that whole event was about. And so go out, get involved, and you can have a say in what those standards are, especially if you feel super passionate about it. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case here, because it's, you know, by this, uh, this this Kronos group, but it sounds like a lot of big players are at the table for this, and so that kind of gives me some 
warm and fuzzies, they wouldn't just send anybody to this. Um, and so I don't know. It, it feels like, yes, we need this. Are the right people there? It seems like for the most part, yes. Uh, and, and I have some thoughts about what standards should be implemented. And we can talk about a lot of those. Barry, what is your initial thoughts on this? I like your faith that the right people are the, are the, are the table. <laughs> I, I, I think that's naive, but heartwarming. Um, do we need standards? As you absolutely say, I think, I think you're absolutely right. But as we've already said, what is the metaverse at the moment? It's an ideology. It's, it's not actually a, a thing, or, or is it? I'm, I'm still not entirely sure. Um, in many cases, you know, the, 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 whenever you get new technologies come along, the, the standards will evolve. You know they're they're there and and they many that's how many come to life. You get some initial things and then they then they keep pace. But this is clearly fueled by a deeper question of trust. Um, people don't trust now large corporates. They don't trust the Googles, the Metas, the uh, the these non uh, the these organisations that aren't governed by literally the government type thing. Um, and even then, with the government, we we don't trust them either. Um, we don't like having people uh, on think um organizations like this having so having so much sway over what we do um i mean for me the best representation i can see of this um or the best the the, the image i conjure in my head when we when, when we talk about the metaverse now is i don't know if you've seen the, the movie ready player one um where they talk about the they, they had the oasis which was their all-pervasive online community um where people worked lived and, and that's really i think where we're talking about now Incidentally, I think the book's better than the film, um, but um, but I think that's kind of where we're at. I think people struggle with with that definition. Yeah, I don't. Do you want to set the scene for um, this quote well, here? Yeah. So um, <laughs> when I put one, you know, um, as we as we usually do, um, or say usually do, I've done it for the past three four episodes. Um, put some stuff out there around on onto social media around what people thought about it. And one of the one of the expected eye rolls that I got on, on one of my comments was kind of as expected by uh, Professor Bob Stone, who's over here in the UK is is very much the the forefront of um, VR, uh, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, and uh, XR and and that type of thing. And so I, I looked at one of his uh, more recent uh, papers and articles to sort of give us a a bit of a grounding because because Bob's very good at that. He's very grounded when it comes to this stuff. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't take any nonsense. Um, and so. What I wanted to do was just draw on some of his words. Um, and he says that the, the notion of a metaverse, not necessarily the, the metaverse, but a metaverse is a persistent online, massive virtual environment with interoperable features that span both digital and real domains. And that idea has actually existed for many years. He, he then describes some of the other collaborative projects and we might drop into them. But the one that we have talked about previously is the one produced by Linden Labs, the, the Second Life. Uh, we, we saw that, that go. And that's not too dissimilar to what we're talking about. But actually, he then goes on to say, uh, today with the efforts have much accelerated, uh, today the efforts have been very much accelerated by COVID-19 pandemic and the need for conferences and international events to go ahead with national and international social distancing well in mind. Interesting, the metaverse has exploded because of this on a, on a global level with all manner of organizations, small and large, offering products and platforms. Just a handful of those organizations active today include Engage, Glue, Point Media, Spatial, uh, Decentraland, uh, CryptoVoxels, and uh, Vibella. In parallel with these technological developments, investors are already planning ahead for doing business within the metaverse. For example, in April, Decentraland sold over 40,000 square meters of virtual space for $572,000. In March, Vignesh Sundarisan bought the first 5,000 days, an item of 
uh, an NFT, which we talked about before, an item of NFT art by Beeple at Christie's for nearly $70 million. He aims to show this digital art acquisition within the virtual worlds of uh, for all meta visitors to enjoy. So that just gives, firstly, the, I like this idea, it, it, a very simple description of it's that persistent online environment, but it does span both the digital and real world. It is bringing them together, but their numbers at the end, them them values, just show how people are now buying into it and and throwing some serious cash. Uh, it's almost that investing in the futures piece, isn't it? Um, it's quite scary, really. Yeah, and I, I want to comment on this too because some of it's predatory. Um, some of it is is people taking advantage of a situation where, like, for example. There's this thing called Earth 2.0, and it's basically Earth in the metaverse, and you mm -hmm. can buy plots of land in the metaverse, and you own that. Is it interoperable with other parts of the metaverse? Maybe. I don't know. We haven't figured that out yet. That's what the standards are for. But if the metaverse doesn't take off, or if this company goes out, you know, then then you've bought, what, this, this digital asset that <laughs> is worthless for... A lot of money in a lot of cases, and so some of it seems like um, it's it's that investment risk, right? And and so you got to take that into consideration. But again, this really highlights why we need standards, uh, and and sort of why this this group of folks are getting together in the first place. And let's let's talk about standards, and um, really what they what standards is, right? And, and we can maybe start there, what a standard is. And it's some way to define how to do a process, procedure, develop a product or anything like that. Really, standards can apply to a lot of different domains. It can apply to every domain, but they can also be a variety of different, um, I guess, interactions, right? It could be a product. It could be a policy. It could be a procedure. It could be... Um, any one of those things, the five P's, whatever they are, uh, policy, procedure, product. I'm blanking on it. Give me any one of those. <laughs> Process. There you go. And uh, and really, ideally, some some uh, organizations like OSHA are out there for safety reasons. Um, Occupational Safety Health Association, uh, and and uh, and so that's why they exist in a lot of cases. Um, in, in most cases, I would argue. Some are government mandated, some are not. Some are sort of community driven, like the exoskeletons thing. I, I think there's ISO standards for that, um, but you know, what what is ISO? I, I don't even know, but there's ISO, there's OSHA, there's a bunch of different organizations that have standards. There's IEEE, uh, who this story is from, they have standards as well, which is probably why they're bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, so the, there's a bunch of different organizations that are working on standards and they have different pedigrees associated with them. And sometimes some other standards take precedence, especially if they come down from the government. And that's, that's kind of my primer on, on standards. Barry, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I think the, some, some people you might get mixed up between what guidance is and what a standard is. So a guidance is just, is, is an element of best practice where people sort of say, Oh, this is kind of how we should work together. Whereas a standard is uh, an agreement on how it how it how people work together or how things will work together, and if you don't follow the standard, you don't get to play. Um, so, and the, the, 
I think the three different categories of, of these are, are worth exploring because you can have, um, and I guess just for, follow that last comment up, you might think, well, how does um, a government mandated standard, we haven't agreed to do that. Well, by the fact you've elected the government, that is you agreeing to do whatever it is that they say. It's unfortunate, but there it is, it's the law. Um, but you have open standards, which is everybody can see um, how the standard was derived, how it was used, and and how, how it was got to, it's all agreed, and all that sort of stuff. And that's, so if you get um, a standard, standard for an API um, uh, programming interface in software, if it's an open standard, you can see how it's derived, you can see the code behind it, and things like that. Um, so that's where that, that more comes into play. Community standards is where, as you've described, people come together and mutually agree between organizations and individuals, yeah, this is the right thing to do and we'll do this. And generally they keep on keep, keep on evolving. But the proprietary standards are some of the things that make me fear around the metaverse. And the proprietary standards are the ones that you fundamentally have to pay to see. Um, if you don't pay pay the fee to see the standard, then you don't get to play. Um, and so you you won't be able to interface with with the with the software. You won't be able to interface with um, the way that they anticipate you working. And so then that excludes people. That includes excludes development, and that excludes um, uh, excludes engagement, which can have all sorts of knock on effects. So it's interesting. We don't really have. We we sort of see that things are potentially going down that maybe open standard, maybe community community standard route. Um, but because we just don't have enough visibility of it yet to see exactly how people are going to chime into uh, being able to engage. Right. Got to pay the troll toll. Uh, so I think there's a bunch of different ways that we can attack this. I think since we're already talking about sort of community approach, I think sort of the broader organizational social aspect of standardization might be a good place to start. Now, I'll start in in the sense of if you think about end user license agreements there's standards around that uh mm -hmm. and there i mean everyone's encountered a eula where you just say yes i agree and you haven't read a damn thing and so just because standards are there doesn't mean they are usable or that they are intuitive or uh really have sort of the best intent for the end user in mind because that is there to make sure that you understand everything about a program before you install it or a process, a service that you subscribe to. And what ends up happening is people just click, I agree, with no sort of check to make sure that the person understands exactly what's going on. Uh, and be, that's because these things are super long. And if you think about some methods that companies and others have employed uh, recently, it's like, okay, the I agree is not clickable until you've scrolled through the thing. But now people just scroll through the thing and hit I agree. So you're adding an extra step to it. They're not really comprehending it. It's just, it's a standard there. So that way people can be aware if they choose to dig. And then that doesn't protect the consumer in a lot of ways because then the company can come back and say, but you hit I agree when you, when you came onto our service or product. You hit I agree, which means that you read that. And it doesn't. Um, and so when you think about stuff like that, you have to really think about um, who's who's making these decisions and why those decisions are there in the first place. That to me sounds like, you know, a legal thing where they were like, OK, we got to we got to inform the user. Let's make yeah. it in 
the worst way possible. I don't know. There's, I mean, end user license agreements are a huge thing and, and they can be tackled by a variety of uh, interaction methods, let's say, like quizzes. and But like, it's, it. there's, there's no good way to do it. I think there's, that's the ultimate, um, ultimate takeaway there. And the reason why I'm bringing up end user license agreements is because that's what the metaverse is going to be made of, especially when you have all these different players in there. And if you have sort of assets from different companies, if you have different organizations with different rules, you're going to have to play by all those rules when you're in the metaverse. And if you break one of those rules and you're not aware of those, then it's one of those things where can you really be at fault because you weren't aware of it? And so they got to present that information to you. And I'm I'm going off on a tangent here, but really the, the thing I'm getting at is that it's complicated. It's very complicated and that standards can't necessarily protect users uh, of whatever product they're using. What do you want to jump into, Barry? I've, I've talked about you, Luz. <laughs> yeah, I think the taking that almost a, a step up and sort, and sort of saying, right, well, where are we going to use this? So again, I sort of brought up the that the, the film and the better book, uh, Ready Player One, where you had um, people were were docking into um, the the um, the Oasis, and you could you could go to school there. You could you know people would go go in there um, to, for their education because their education experience was just so much so much richer, so much better. Um, you could work. And there was various various uh, work options that you could have there. Obviously, entertainment was 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 massive. You could trade, um, and and the, the higher up you got in the social hierarchy, then more things were open to you. And and then also, I mean, going back to the the second life that, that we used the example of earlier, there was um, large broadcasting corporations were holding concerts and everything in virtual environments and so you could easily get people together to to have meetings to to discuss things and all that sort of stuff and you can just see how this type of technology will make all that better because particularly so say you're uh, working you're working collaboratively collaboratively um you can see where standards are going to be used here because if you can if you've got different languages if you've got different discussions if you've got different ways of working um being able, on the ability to share data in in a meaningful collaborative way the ability the ability to discuss in a collaborative way but also the the ability to easily legally and you got actually chimes into what you said about um and use license agreements that that le them legal elements because if we're going to be talking um business across um countries in a much freer way than we are now then different countries have different uh, business legal standards um and so how do we make sure that that all works so it should make that sort of stuff easier your your education piece is going to be huge because the ability to go and demonstrate foreign cultures the ability to go i mean um some of the examples that you, that, that you get used when you're talking about um things in space you can actually go and visit the sun, the planets, or you know the, the representations of. But how do we know that the the, the lessons that are being taught uh, will be to the of, of an appropriate standard, um, an appropriate representation, and not just made up? You're then back to standards. How do you apply teaching standards within the metaverse? Um, society again is just two replications of, of them of them things. And if you're doing uh, public meetings, public forums, or 
concerts and things like that. How do you make sure that artists' rights are respected? Um, when you're, you're, you know, anybody can um, chime into these things. We've already got now that if you want to watch um, programs in a in a different country to where where you're at, then you can now use VPN tunneling to make your DNS look like it's within that country, and therefore you get around some of these these barriers. We're going to need standards to be able to deal with um, geographical issues um, around licensing and things to make to make that work. So. I think it's one of these things. It's easy to dive down into, and I think we will dive down into some almost the the not the negatives, but the challenges um, of what the metaverse is going to going to give us. Um, but it's also it, it's got it's a massive opportunity as well um, because it it is a, a next generation jump. Um, but I do think we've got some really physical things that are that act as barriers to us exploiting it properly, right? You, do you want to pick one up now? Because I realize I wish yeah. it on quite. No, it's okay. I want to. I want to continue on your thought because if you're talking about international laws and different countries having different laws, is the metaverse in itself its own environment, and should we treat it as such? Should it be governed outside of real world uh, governments? Right, like should we? Should we have a government in the metaverse that decides the standards, that decides um, how all these laws work in the metaverse? And really, that becomes even more challenging because how do you come up with a system, a, a, a political philosophy that that satisfies everyone or that will sort of satisfy most? And if that differs from the country that you are physically located in, how how do those laws interact and um you know if if you've done something illegal in your country but it happened in the metaverse does it count so there's mm-hmm. all these like this is uh, this opens up another can of worms but this is this is where i'm headed because if you think about standards you you are operating uh especially in a space where if we think this is truly the internet x.0 whatever it is ends up being um, we can bring some of the lessons learned forward from those, but also it introduces a whole bunch of new challenges, especially if we're spending our entire lives in the metaverse. We had a whole entire show on that. Uh, and so if, if you're thinking about how people might interact with this virtual thing, do they reside there? Are they a, a member of society there? Can they still, does the government make sense? Is that then somebody's whole job? But then how do they make money in the real world? Do they make real world money from the metaverse and then use that to fund a residence in the real world. This, this whole thing becomes a very complex issue very quickly when you start to pull on the strings here a little bit and understand what standards might actually mean, because you can't implement a standard that's illegal in another country. um, Or what I mean by illegal is that you can't necessarily implement those restrictions on people in another country. Um, And so you have to think about that type of stuff. One example of this could be like international copyright law. And if you have, you know, like Fortnite does this now, you have a bunch of different characters in Fortnite that are interacting with each other. And it's it's such a bizarre thing to see, you know, characters from one franchise that you love, like Stormtroopers fighting Goku. Like it's it's weird. Right. And it's it's this weird experiment. And they have concerts in there, too. It's like the most true example of what a metaverse could be right now, at least in my opinion. Um, you know, the only thing that's missing from it really is VR and, and like the, there's, there's a lot missing from it, <laughs> so, but, um, 
the the businesses that have participated in this type of thing have agreed to have their character licensed out into the um into the game and are available some in perpetuity which is really interesting yeah. will those laws apply in in the metaverse and and can somebody create a digital asset that is a character from an ip that's in the real world and how is that protected uh there's just so many issues and really it's just a can of worms and i kind of want to get out of this because it's just leading me down a rabbit hole that i can't get out of Uh, (laughs) i mean a lot of that is being is being sorted out now isn't it because at the moment i still see you know you, you, the way you expressed it is 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 this inter- internet sort of 2.0 3.0 whatever um because it kind of is we're still just talking about data and all we're doing really is talking about a, a better way of visualizing it um at this point at this point i mean we are going down that route of what do we do a bit a bit later on but right now we do have pervasive data that's going uh, that doesn't know geographical boundaries um and so we're having to deal with some of them issues already um different libel laws and and things like that we have to deal with on a country by country basis um so your your social media has to deal with that because it's kind of ubiquitous and um and different things happen so i don't think we need to I, i think we need to worry about it but not too much right now if that makes sense um because i think that will evolve and it'll all get it'll be tested um by unfortunately by people screwing up um and then it'll get tested in law and then and that's kind of how most legal systems work and this won't be any different in that respect um it will just be you know as as case law develops um we'll work out what it is i mean the financial industry is is a really big one for that like who pays tax where um i mean the, the thing that worries me about this to a certain extent um and then I will um, dive off this into into some more fun engineering stuff. Good. Is um, you know we talk about about ge- you know geographic con- uh, actual proper government ran countries, and then this is going to be a corporate ran. Um, and how does that work? And again, I sort of mentioned Ready Player One a couple of times. They do deal with that as, as a topic, and it, and it's interesting. Um, but to go back to the definition that uh, that we read out from Bob earlier. Um, you know, he, he sort of highlights that it's got to span both digital and real domains. And I think this is where, for me, the engineering is is kind of, um, it's getting there, but it's still got a bit to do. Um, because fundamentally, everything's that you've got to be able to put on a headset to make it happen. So you're immediately blocking out the world. I mean, we've used this language already. You're, you know, you stay immersed in it all the time. But if you're wearing a VR headset, then you're not seeing the outside world. Therefore, you're not interact. It's it's not a it's not that what I what I think fits with the idea of, of a metaverse. Um, you're just in a fancy video game. Um, you know, it's a very good one and, and and quite cool. But you're not augmenting. You know, you're not you're not augmenting both realities together. Um, but I think again, going back to the standards for this, um, even with the VR headsets, we need the standards in place now uh, to look at things like when you put on a headset. Do we insist that it checks the environment around you to make sure that it looks after you? You're not going to trip over anything. You're not going to run into a wall. You're not going to trip over something you left on your floor because of the space that you, that that space that you need in the physical space to explore the virtual space. Um, so one of the headsets I've got at the moment will now do that at the beginning. You know, you put it on, it checks the environment around you, and point. You know, you can see through to see 
what is in your way exactly right um and and so some of them will do that but they're doing that because it's a nice thing to do it's not a standard of a headset yet it, it, there is no there's no directive there that says the user shall be um kept safe by you know ensuring that they don't walk into something that endangers them um and that this is where i think we need to start looking at standards for, for things like that because you've got games that have you flailing your ha- arms around everywhere um next thing you know you've knocked something off your sideboard because you didn't check it straight away uh or you knock it off the top of your telly or you knock your telly over because you didn't realize it was there when you sort of start karate kicking things and um and things like that so we need to make sure that the technologies that, that keep people safe are included in some sort of standard around how we develop accessories for um um for um any any sort of equipment that we, that we use with the metaverse yeah i i agree i mean just look at any sort of supercut of people getting injured with vr headsets on and you'll see exactly what we're talking about here there's a lot of different safety standards that need to go into it and really this comes down from everything from uh the 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 physical safety concerns that's kind of what we're talking about here with uh, your eye health. Can you wear, uh, you know, a, a headset for that long of a time without having some sort of impact to your eyesight? Uh, can you look at physical health if you're in this thing and you're not moving? If you're kind of just sitting there um, looking at things in the metaverse and moving with a joystick rather than your physical body, if you're unable to, are you then neglecting your physical health in terms of exercise and? nutrition even are you are you opting for the easier choices uh versus you know perhaps a a more robust nutritional choice uh because you're stuck in an environment you want to stay there you're not stuck you you choose to be there um and then there's the physical health of others like barry said if you're waving your hands around in the environment how do you communicate with others in that environment that they can't see you and that you are at risk of being in that danger zone and, you know, like this, uh, there's some really, really tough videos to watch where there's children walking around people in VR. Uh, and it's like, OK, well, you've just hit them in the face because they were unaware that they that you can't see them. And it's this um, it's this whole external awareness thing that needs to happen. You know, beyond that, there's also the the sort of ergonomics of, of the headgear, right? As these things I mean, thankfully, some of the headsets now are fairly light. But if you imagine sort of long-term effects of having uh, a weight on your on the front of your head, you're pulling your neck forward, and and is that great for posture or you know long-term uh, mobility? Probably not, you know. And so there, there's there's counterweights, and then but you're still putting weight down on your head, and so uh, are there timers associated? There's all these different things that need to go into it, um, and and you know. It, I think beyond that, there's some of the engineering of the devices themselves. I talked a little bit about the ergonomics. You want to talk a little bit about usability, Barry? Yeah, I mean, we've got to make sure that um, a bit like what we have with a lot of phones now, you've got a lot of basically standards around the user interface. And, and we, there's, there's, well, almost um, there, there is a standard around what we see, what you expect to see, what actions do what um what you expect a non-switch to do for example how you expect to um engage with different bits with um with the use of vr and, and ar we there, there is obviously potentially different ways and we if you use any of these devices at the moment you see that there are different ways subtly different ways of manipulating things subtly different ways to manip- um to 
have you progressed through a game or through a, a building or something like that? And we need to get some um, some standards there about making sure that is a common uh, common way of working. Not necessarily because it's it's hypercritical or anything like that, but um, it means that when people are developing new applications and, and new cool stuff that we expect to get the benefit from, that if you've got standards there to, to delve into, it's a bit like having a library of, of like what we would at the moment uh, with any sort of uh, user interface design. You go for the libraries of the, of the stuff that is read, open, ready defined from there already um, because you can you know it's going to be adapted. It means that the training burden is going to be super low. It means that people are going to be able to go and be immersed in it and use it um, straight away. So it's, it's really, some people see standards as being the... Um, the stick that you beat people with to do exactly what you want. Actually, in many ways, certainly for, from our perspective, from an HR perspective, particularly from a user build, uh, from a user design perspective, then they're, they're brilliant because you know if you implement the standard, then there's a really good chance that, that its adoption will be super high and, and its usability will, will be really, really good. And then that means you can actually focus on what's the novelty of what I'm doing? What is it, you know, what is it that's super special that I'm doing um, that we couldn't do before? Um, and that's where the metaverse then will have value because if we can, you know, get rid of the dull stuff, um, in theory, you can actually focus on what on, on the value. Right. And in the notes, you brought up a good point about how, how to train people on this thing and whether or not it should be intuitive, like our phones, there's no real instruction manual, but, uh, sort of using, uh, something feels intuitive and, and you kind of get it just from being, uh, from interacting with the thing. Should VR operate the same way? If not, then we need to have training associated with that. But then what does that look like? Are there, and I'm sure there's skills in VR that you will need training for. Like, I don't know, I, I can think of um, perhaps taking a class for drawing in VR, you know, like what does that look like? How to use the tools? But that's not necessarily to use the headset and to use VR. That's that's a different thing. It's a skill set within VR. And so training I, I I'm of the belief that yes, it should be intuitive as they're uh, as as we incorporate this into people's lives and everything in the environment, or at least be able to um, understand once you're in there how how to interact with things. Like it should be crystal clear. And I think there's a bunch of different ways in which you can uh, communicate to the user, and that'll be that'll evolve over time. Um, but I think the last point that I want to talk about before we move on here is sort of the safety or the the I guess, safety of people who need protection. Uh, and this is, we talk a lot about privacy on the show and cybersecurity is a huge human factors issue. But really, when you're looking at those at risk, like minors uh, or, you know, um, prisoners are another uh, population, pregnant women, you have all these different populations that need special considerations. Uh, those, and especially those who in a virtual environment have like motion sickness. How do you, communicate to those types of people who have specific needs um, what type of uh, protection that they have. Uh, and so if you think about some of these um, methods that we're employing now, we have like GDPR <laughs> that uh, is really just, um, you know, a button that says here, accept all these cookies. But at the base of it, it's saying, what information are you allowing these companies to track about you? And it's that whole end user license agreement that I brought up at the beginning of this discussion where they're communicating to you kind of what information they're tracking on you, but how do you sort of make sure that that information, uh, that personal data around you uh, is is protected and that you're sharing the things that you want to share with others? 
um, you know, we all have a right to privacy. And I think these types of issues will will certainly uh, rise up. Barry, any last thoughts on standards in the metaverse before we move on? Yeah, I think the um, just a sort of final point on that whole people bit is the one of the things that I think we do now is you have a home life and a work life. Um, or if you're like me and it just all blends together, but most people go to work and then come home and, and kind of want to have a bit of a gap between, between the two. If you're living your life in, in the metaverse and you don't have a, an ability, a bit like we do at the moment that you can say to your, your employer or whatever, back off, I'm at home now. Um, how do we balance that, that work home life piece? Um, how do we keep our hobbies away from, um, and our extracurricular activities away from, you know, our day-to-day activities, and things like that. So how do how do we put in them barriers? But as a final sort of thought from me, if if we get all this done right, the you know trying to looking at the positive side of things, there's some really big advantages that we're going to see. So the ability to do, I mean, even now we sort of do, um, we we do this hybrid working where we try and we we still we're still missing. I still miss physical meetings. I, I went to one this week and and it was really nice to be in a room where you could pick up um, subtle cues. I could I could tell when I was making people, um, I was putting people under stress. When I was asking the question, and then I could, so I could rephrase my question in a in a way was that was perhaps less threatening, um, in a, in a way that you just wouldn't pick up on a on on like a camera system like we we're using at the moment, uh, um, a remote system. So if the if the whole um, VR piece gets better and you can actually see more of that interaction, then that means actually people will be less there'll be less need to travel and so that'll be brilliant for the climate and and we can also you know you can go and visit people and talk to people that you don't necessarily talk to very much because they live so far away i might actually go and sell that to my parents and things um so i think that sort of thing it will be really good if we get it right but we're going to need to rely on standards to make uh, make them sort of interactions to, that we can focus on the interaction and not everything else so yeah i'm quite excited but nervous at the same time well said all right. Well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting the topic and thank you to our friends over at the IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you truly keep the show running and our lab running, too. So we thank you all so much for your continued support. I want to talk about something else that you may or may not be aware of. And we started this a couple of weeks ago, uh, I guess a couple of months ago at this point. Um, I'm going to encourage you all to follow us on social media. If you don't have the time to watch or listen to a full episode, that's OK. I don't blame you. We're all busy people. 
But uh, on those social media accounts, we're now producing some shorts around uh, the episodes that we put out there. So you can still keep up with the news. We post a little soundbite about what we're talking about on the news story that week. Uh, a lot of bite-sized content if you don't have the time to listen to the full show. Uh, and we're posting these on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. Go follow us there. I don't request this often, and I, I feel like too much of a social media influencer when I say, you know, follow us on these platforms. But we are putting out good good stuff, uh, and, and really it's a way for you to connect with the show, even if you don't have time to listen to the full thing. Um, we also put our It Came Froms out there, which we'll get to in just a second, and then you'll find it on the socials. Uh, beyond that, we have our Twitter and our LinkedIn, where we actually post our weekly poll. So there's a couple ways to interact with us, right? Short videos on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and then we have our weekly polls on Twitter and LinkedIn, where you can actually have a voice in what we talk about on the show. I wanted to bring that up. I don't, I don't talk about that enough, but... Uh, Follow us on those platforms if you'd like to have more agency in the show and keep in touch with us, even if you can't listen on a daily basis. I understand. All right. So let's go ahead and switch gears, get into this next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, no matter where you're watching, listening, Give us a like to help other people find this content. Those algorithms are sure sneaky. All right, we have three tonight. The first one up here is from the Human Factors subreddit. This is by BuffChin5566. They write, Human Factors and Agile Methods. Hello, all. I'm curious about if anyone here has some experience with human factors within Agile development environment. Started a new job not too long ago, and the company product is heavily relying on software development. My feeling is that my company is using Scrum, uh, which I think makes sense for the software development side, but is new to me as a human factors engineer. I also have a feeling that my team does not strictly follow the Scrum method. Anyway, basically just following my manager's direction. I'm also trying to learn new things about Agile. So, Barry, have you have you worked in an Agile environment? How does human factors fit into that equation? Well, funny you should mention this. If you go to 1202 and look at episode two of, of season one, I think it is, um, I talk all about the use of Agile in, in human factors. Well worth a look. But fundamentally, yes. Um, I think in the HF world, we we sort of think that um, Agile is maybe something new and shiny. But actually, for me, I just think it's doing it's doing good HF. Uh, there is some of the wider structures around it, around Scrum, and we, whatever way you're going to do it, you do bring out a really good differentiator between Agile isn't necessarily, sorry, Scrum isn't necessarily completely Agile, or Agile, they're not one and the same thing. You can be Agile and not follow Scrum. Agile is a way of thinking. Scrum is a, is a specific methodology. Um, but the, the fundamentally around Agile is bringing the right people around the table. And so for us, that means making sure the user is at the heart of what, of, of what we do. And for us, we're like, well, yeah, okay, that, we, we always do that. that that's, the, that's the nature of the job. But we've got to remember that so particularly for software engineers or you do physical stuff engineers on, on the outside, um, they don't necessarily do that. Is it, that is a completely new way of working for them. And then to get, I always get like the project management involved as well because they don't normally see what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and they come up and go, oh, oh, you do actually work um, and things like that. And um, so yeah, Agile and, and and Sprint is something very close to my heart. I think it, it's, it's a good way of working. Um, it's not necessarily better quicker wait i think it's better it's not necessarily quicker 
Um, the the time taken should be about the same because you're just do you're just doing it in a different way. The amount of work hasn't actually changed. Um, and how you work with work within sprints, um, you'll you'll div, you'll pick that up as you go along. But fundamentally, you don't necessarily finish. If you don't finish all the work, you put it back into the backlog, reprioritize, and then draw. And it might get drawn out in again next, or it might get further pushed on further down the line. Nick, what about you? How uh, what's your experience with Agile? Uh, full disclosure here, I am a licensed Scrum master, so <laughs> there's that. But I think really when you talk about Agile and you talk about Scrum, it's a way to organize and. Ultimately, that's it. You know, there's there's some concerns in here in this original poster's uh, uh, comment that I didn't quite get to. And most of it was around the time taken. You know, there's two to four week sprints that a lot of companies implement. And when you start applying the time limit to those things, that's where it gets a little tricky, especially from a human factors domain, because we're reliant on access to users. And so there's some things that we can do, some things that we can't do. But that's why we plan. We say, okay, in these next two weeks, we're hoping to talk to two users. And if we can't make it, then we do that in the next sprint. It's kind of like a backlog. We want to talk to five users. And so we're hoping to talk to three of them this time and two of them the following sprint. And if we don't match the three this time, then we do the two next time or then we do three next time, you know? And so there's, um, it's just a way to get organized. And I don't think that we as human factors practitioners should take it to gospel. It's just a way that people organize and it's also a way in which we can communicate with other places uh other other people we speak different languages like uh developers and designers and uh product managers it's a way that we can communicate with them about what we are doing within their framework so beyond that i wouldn't worry too much about it uh let's get into this next one here by vux anav on the <laughs> ux research subreddit this one's simple barry what artifacts do you usually deliver? Do you design wireframes or prototypes? What do you do? What, what do you give? It depends. There it <laughs> is. Um, yes, it could be. What it, it depends. What it what what the client is wanting to see, or what mind what whoever I'm delivering into, what, what it is that they're wanting, and the the level of detail that they're they're trying to get to. It could be wireframes. It could be we talked about it last week. The use of a, a PowerPoint model. It could be the use. It could be a, a, a you know a fig, figma sheet. It could be a report. Um, it depends on. It does depend. It depends on what the client is and what it is that you're trying to achieve overall. There's never been a more it depends question on the show. I think because really, it, it who's your audience? What information are you trying to communicate? Uh, what uh, what information do you have that you need to analyze? Like there, there's just a bunch of different ways in which to interpret this question. Um, and in fact, I will, I, I don't do this often, but one of the top answers here on, on Reddit itself is it depends with an exclamation point. And I just had to bring that up because, uh, really that's what the motto of the show is. And they go into a bunch of different, uh, types of artifacts that are delivered, but Barry, you hit it right on the head. Like, uh, I would say bread and butter, probably presentations of some sort, uh, and, <laughs> I don't know, beyond that, uh, design recommendations. I think those are the two big ones for me is like you're reporting and you're providing design recommendations and anything kind of falls within those two buckets. They just, how you deliver them is going to differ. That's that's that. All right, we have one more here. This one is from the uh, I Love Hopslam uh, on the UX research subreddit. Other people in your company doing UX research. This one's interesting. 
in the past year, a team of uh, BAs in my company have started doing user testing. At first, they assured me my UX team wasn't user testing. It's become obvious it is. They make UX recommendations when they've finished, and they've completely cut out any actual UX people in the process. I'm bothered for two reasons. The quality of work is poor in a lot of ways, which leads to a rubber stamp. Uh, and I think that part of the appeal pro for pro that's part of the appeal for product owners. Uh, two, that's my job. Uh, they could have passed that request to us, and we would have done it. It's pretty clear to me that they're intentionally cutting UX out. Uh, at my company, UX is poorly understood by stakeholders and product owners, feeling really undervalued, isolated, and also threatened that someone is effectively stealing my job. Anyone else dealt with a situation like this? I'm struggling to figure out how to deal with this professionally, but I'm but also psychologically. <laughs> Barry, how do you deal with this? It's not an easy one, but it fits into sort of things that we mentioned before around how how is human factors respected a within your um, your immediate you know uh, company within your department or, or or however you're structured, but also within your community as well. Um, it might be I. It, the way that this reads is that the, obviously the author is is feeling like it's a bit malicious in in many ways that they're deliberately being cut out the loop and that type of thing. And it might just be that they the, the wider uh, wider organisation they just don't quite get what it is you do. Um, and sometimes and it's quite pertinent with me at the moment because I'm actually going through this exact problem right now. Is I'm having to almost bite off a bit of a, a bit of almost a stakeholder at a time to try and go and say, well, actually, you know, you're, you're talking about this sort of stuff and that's that's involving people. I do the people bit and you can have my resource for free. I'm here and, and believe it or not, I actually know what I'm talking about sometimes. Um, so, and it might, so that might be the problem. And if it is, then unfortunately that is down to you and your team to um, ev be evangelical about what you do. You need to tell people, that that is what you're there for. That is what your job is, and you're a um, professionally trained person, and you can do that. You can do the job, and it's going to cost them no more because you've already been paid. Um, the other one there is if they are intentionally cutting you out, there's clear, clearly some issues or politics at play. Um, and really, you could just either there's two ways of doing it. One is ignoring it, and go go find another job if you just don't like it. You if if the company's not working for you, go find a one that go find a one that loves you, um, or you could try and solve it um because other people might not realize that this issue is in is in play and raise it up um go and tell your raise it up through your management or whatever the appropriate route is don't just no matter what the problem is though don't just ignore it that's possibly the worst thing you can do if you just sit there and just let it roll you will get uh you'll feel more disrespected you you won't you won't get the satisfaction out of the job that you want to do in the you want to do well um so it's it's it is sometimes quite um, appealing just to think oh it'll it'll sort itself out over time, it won't it'll only get worse and you'll um, you'll you'll feel worse and that's probably the most important thing at this point. Yeah, Nick, I think there needs to be some sort of internal stakeholder meeting. <laughs> Understand you know roles and responsibilities, and if that isn't clearly defined, roll it up. Uh, it's it's one of the, there's an opportunity here, right? And like you said, Barry, step in and say hey look like. This is this is great that you guys are doing this. I'd love to help out with this. Uh, there's a way to approach it, sort of uh, non-threatening, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and that internal communication is also a part of what we do too. And I think communication is really key to a lot of things that we do. And just keeping in mind that they are people too, and they're 
they're looking out for the best interest of the product and and hopefully the user. And really, you can step in and say, hey, look, you know, there's there's ways to provide subtle recommendations without being a jerk about it. Like just say, hey, did you know that um, next time you ask that question, don't lead them uh, and and you'll get some better results. Not calling you out here. Just saying. Don't be a jerk about it. Like. <laughs> All right, it's time we get into that sh- part of the show. One more thing. It's just where we talk about whatever's top of mind. Barry, what is your one more thing this week? So you might recall that I sort of got into American football. Um, and oh, yes. Sort of did all that. And we won the Super Bowl last year. Just just, just point that out. This year, my, my next step is I've got into fantasy football. So I was invited Ooh. to the fantasy football NFL league. And um, and now, now there's now sort of 10 of us. And, uh, and I've... So not only are you just following a team, you're then following individual members across many teams, which makes Sunday evenings when 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 the football's on a lot more interesting because you're actually more bought <laughs> into these teams. Um, and it's really interesting. So just seeing the dynamic of how that's changed um, my interest in what's going on. But the reason I'm so interested in it is because after the last two games, um, I'm still number one in the league and I still don't know what I'm doing, but it's brilliant. <laughs> so yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of fantasy football at the moment. That's that's wonderful. For me, it's uh, Andor. Andor uh, released this week on Disney+. Plus. They released three episodes. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, for anyone unaware. I try to temper that on the show. However, if you're watching, you might see a bunch of things behind me that say Star Wars. Anyway, so Andor I aired this week, and uh, I have a gripe to, to bring up with Disney. Can you just release your stuff at, like, prime time in, in U.S. time so that way I don't have to stay up until 2 a.m. watching a three-episode premiere so that way I don't get spoiled? Come on. You know your audience. And then <laughs> and then I have to do it for the next night for the Marvel stuff, too. I did it last night with She-Hulk. So it's like, come on. It's like back-to-back. Just do it at prime time. Let people on the East Coast watch. You know, make the, make the folks in the U.K. suffer a little bit. Come on. Come on, Disney. What are you doing? Here we go. Now. <laughs> I knew that was good. And that's it for today, everyone. What, uh, if you liked the, our episode this week, enjoy some of the discussion about the metaverse. I'll in- encourage you to go listen to episode 232, where we talk about will future humans live their entire lives in the metaverse. You can always comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community. Please hang out with us over there. You can also visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways that you can do that. One, leave us a five-star review. You can do that wherever you're watching, listening right now. Go do that. It's free. Uh, two, you can tell your friends about us. That is also free for you to do, and you might find a new uh, a new Human Factors nerd that you can nerd out about the show with. Uh, three, if you have the financial means to do so, consider supporting us. We do have a whole lab that is supported by your contributions, uh, so it's not just Barry and myself pocketing the cash. It really goes to the tools and the resources that they use to make stuff. Uh, and beyond that links to all of our socials and our website and are in the description of this episode remember we put out a bunch of fun stuff over there on our platforms please follow us mr barry kirby thank you for being on the show today where can our listeners go find you if they want to talk about standardizing uh fantasy football if you want to come and talk about that with me on the socials then come and find me at baz underscore k particularly on twitter um if you want to come listen to some interviews um some more long-form interviews with interesting people about interesting topics then come and find me on 1202 the human factors podcast at 1202podcast.com as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord server and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. 
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.